All right. So we are working our way through Jesus' last bits of teaching and direction um, before he gets crucified. So these are things that he thought were very important for followers of him to know. The view I'm taking is that at the end of chapter 14, they start walking from the upper room where they had the Last Supper out towards the garden where we're going to have the Garden of Gethsemane covered in um, some of the other Gospels. So at this point, they're on their way. And we're going to look at 15.1 today. And Jesus starts by saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And if you were a first century Israelite, that would have sparked immediate associations. Uh, For us, maybe not so much. So let's actually go back uh, and look at Isaiah 27. So... While we're turning there, Israel in ancient times was well known for being a place where they grew lots of grapes, and so grape products, raisins, wine, all that stuff is really, really important in their culture. And one of the most common metaphors running through the Old Testament is the idea of the nation of Israel as a vine, and God, the Lord, in the Old Testament, is the one who tends that vine. And so Isaiah 27 is just one of the examples of it, and this is a prediction of the future when he talks about the Lord judging um, the focus in 27 is on the judgment of the world, But in the middle of that, he talks about the vineyard. He says, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. So right away, you see the idea of the Lord as a gardener is going to be familiar to the disciples. He says, I am not angry. If only there are briars and thorns confronting me. I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. So here in this particular passage, foreign nations are portrayed as briars and thorns that would make life difficult for the vineyard. Then he says, in days to come, Jacob will take root Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. So running through the Old Testament, we have these predictions that, yes, times are hard, the vineyard's getting punished, but there's always this hope that someday Israel would have a revival and then would be great again. And so the idea of patriotism is not unique to America Trump sold a lot of Make America Great hats. There was probably someone in first century Israel selling the equivalent of Make Israel Great Again. So 
this, this hope is out there that the vine will prosper someday. He goes on, has the Lord struck her, meaning Israel, the vine, as he struck down those who struck her? Has she been killed as those who killed, ah, as those were killed who killed her? By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With his fierce blast, he drives her out. So talking about how the Assyrians and the Babylonians have driven people out. By this, then, will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full fruitage of the removal of his sin when he makes all the altar stones to be like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement forsaken like the desert. There the calves graze, there they lie down, they strip its branches bare. When its twigs are dry, they are broken off, and women come and make fires with them. For this is a people without understanding so their maker has no compassion on them, and their creator shows them no favor. So that passage is talking about how God judges the vine when the vine's not doing correctly. And one of the things that happens is that branches get broken off and used in a fire. But there is hope. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one, and in that day a great trumpet will sound. Those who are perishing in Assyria, those who are exiled in Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So bad times keep happening to the vine, but we hope someday the vine gets restored. All right? Now let's look at one more, Psalm 80. So flip over to Psalm 80. We'll start at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. So once again, God is the gardener. The vine is the nation. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out its boughs to the sea, it shoots as far as the river, probably meaning the Euphrates. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty, look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root of your right hand is planted. The son you have raised up for yourself. So one of the other images that recurs through the Old Testament is the idea of the nation as the son of God. So you may remember um, there are passages that say things like, out of Egypt I called my son, talking about the nation of Israel. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish, still focused on the nation. Then we get this, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you've raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you, revive us, and we will call on your name, restore us, O Lord God Almighty, 
Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. So if you are someone who is raised in a church today, you've probably heard Jesus referred to as the Son of Man, so you read those verses and you immediately think this is talking about Jesus. And I think in hindsight, the disciples probably had that same reaction. But if you are an Israelite and you haven't met Jesus yet, you are focused on the nation here, and you may think, well, there's a reference to the Son of Man. Maybe that's the Davidic king, and we need good leadership in order for the nation's fortunes to be restored. But what you're really focused on is the hope for the nation and that somehow the nation will be restored. Okay? And you think you're part of the vine if you're an Israelite based on these passages, right? I think that's a pretty straightforward application of it. So all that's in the background of the disciples' minds when they hear Jesus say, I am the true vine, okay? So let's charge back to John. And see what Jesus means when he says, I am the true vine. He says, he, meaning God the Father, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or cleans, you could translate it, so that it will be even more fruitful. So there are only two outcomes for branches. Either you get cut off from the true vine or you bear fruit and you get pruned. And let's talk about the people who bear fruit first. So he goes on to say, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I think what he's talking about there is how the disciples have already shown their commitment to his treatment, to his teaching, So he views them as believers. And he mentioned that at the Last Supper when he said to Peter, you're already clean, all of you are already clean, except Judas, who's never clean. So this is, with regard to believers, it's not focused so much on conversion as on what he wants you to do after conversion. And that is to remain in me, I actually think that's not the best translation. I prefer translations that say, abide in me, and I will abide in you. And the idea, the reason I like abide, is the idea here is permanent dwelling. Ongoing, permanent living together. So I like abide. I think that captures it better. So it is permanent association with me. And if you do that, I will permanently associate or abide with you. And you can bear no fruit unless you remain in me. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So the point with regard to disciples is that Jesus is the only source of spiritual sustenance and life And they won't be able to bear any fruit unless his life is running through them to cause them to bear fruit. So he says in verse 5, I am the vine, 
You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me or abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So key points with regard to believers is you can't do anything spiritually without Christ and his empowerment. And the second thing is you're going to get pruned. And Jesus doesn't explain what pruning means, but I think if you think about what a pruned tree or a pruned bush looks like right after it's been pruned, it's not pretty, right? And then it's only over time that you see that this thing that looks painful to the plant actually makes the plant more productive. And so my best guess is what he's talking about with pruning is spiritual discipline, which comes in all kinds of forms, including allowing us to suffer hardship. So, for example, Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh that he wanted to go away, and God's response is, nope, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, you're going to learn a spiritual lesson through this. This can even help you be more spiritually productive. So, Whether we like it or not, pruning is coming, but the goal is so that you can be spiritually productive, and as we're going to find out uh, later, um, it's fruit that will last for eternity. So the fruit is good spiritual works, Um, following his commands is going to be important to that, and it's things that last forever. All right, now let's talk about the other outcome, the bad one. So he says he cuts off, which is different than pruning, every branch in me that bears no fruit. And it's that phrase, in me, that creates a lot of controversy. And there are three, I think, popular ways among conservative Christians to interpret that phrase. So phrase one would be the Arminian way, which in me means these are branches that have an authentic, genuine connection to Christ. They lose it, so they're cut off because they apostatize from the faith, and burned in the fire means they experience eternal judgment, just like anyone who never believed in Jesus. And I think the best argument, if you want to go that route is that if you look at how Paul uses the phrase in Christ, when Paul uses the phrase in Christ, he means someone who's a genuine believer, right? So for example, um, flip over, Romans has some examples of it, Ephesians does too, like look at Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 
He addresses the epistle to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So when you read Paul and you see in Christ, you can think genuine believer. That's how he uses that phrase. But one of the rules of interpreting scripture is each author has his own unique style. So you can't assume that because Paul uses in Christ that way, that's what Jesus means as related through John, who has his own unique style. But that view is out there. It's popular. There are plenty of um, valid Christians who are genuine believers, and they're Arminian. A second view is that what's going on here is we have people who are genuine believers, but they lose their reward. And the best argument for that view would be to go to 1 Corinthians. I would say this probably has, the second view probably has the least number of people that like it. So 3.12, Paul says, If any man builds on this foundation, talking about Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. And he's talking about appearing in front of Christ to have your life evaluated. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And some of the things Paul listed, like gold and silver, are fine if you send them through fire. They may melt, but when they're done melting and cool off, you have gold and silver again. There's other stuff like hay or straw, doesn't do well in fire. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. There's a group of people out there that, in my opinion, try to make this passage do way more work than it was intended they basically go back to the Gospels and try to interpret everything talking about judgment through the lens of this passage and say it's just about rewards. And so if you see a bad outcome in the Gospels, it just means you'll lose your reward. You won't have as big a mansion as the next dude, but you'll be fine. You'll be in heaven. And I don't think, I think this is the weakest of the views. I think if you go back to John and look at what happens to the branches, they're cut off from the true vine, they're dead, and then they are tossed in the fire and burned. And there's no, but we'll save a shoot, it's burned up. So to me, it sounds an awful lot like what John says happens to unbelievers at the end of Revelation, when they get chunked in the lake of fire. So I think the second view is the weakest of the three. The one I like the best, although this is not something you can say, hey, this is right, this is wrong, is the third view, which is that these folks were never genuine believers. The best arguments for this, in my opinion, is that we know um, John 
has verses that seem to strongly support eternal security for people who are believers. One example would be at John 6, so go back there. So at 39, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So if you are a genuine believer, you make it to the last day and get resurrected. And then look at chapter 10. Twenty-seven. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So once you're part of Jesus' flock, no one can take you away from Jesus. And then um, flip over to First John. The other thing we know, John believes, is that it is possible for people to be associated even with the church and yet show they are not genuine believers. So if you look, for example, at 2.19, he says, They went out from us, we think, talking about some people that were leaders in one of the local churches that John's writing to. But they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained or abided with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So his view of these people is because they separated from the apostolic church, they showed they were never really genuine believers. So those are concepts we know John agrees with. But to me, the, maybe the best argument is the Old Testament background, which is the idea of Israel as divine. And so Jesus knows there are going to be people that think they are in good standing with God based on being part of Israel, which, if you think about it, is associated with Jesus. Everyone who's an Israelite can probably claim they're a cousin to some degree of Jesus. And so they would think, I'm part of the vine. And what Jesus is trying to teach is, no, that's not enough. You need an authentic connection to the true vine, which is me. And so what he's doing with the new covenant is he's trying to get even Israelites to focus their faith on him, not any personal connection they have with Abraham, David, or the nation of Israel. And so, yes, I think in Jesus' mind, it's very possible there's people that appear to be connected with him, but have no authentic connection with him. And this is where I think we can apply it to ourselves today. You can grow up in a church, attend there every week for who knows how many years, 
But if you don't have an authentic connection to Jesus, your church membership's not going to help you. You could be cut off. The only way you can have the eternal life that Jesus gives is by forming an authentic connection with him. And if you do, you need to remember you're dependent on that for the rest of your life. You can never go away from it. And if you want to produce anything of eternal significance, it's only through Christ's empowerment flowing through you that it happens. All right. Questions, comments, concerns about that? All right. Let's keep going because he's going to flesh out some of these ideas a little bit more. So verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's a short statement, but I think it's important not to blow by it. So think about how Jesus has talked about the Father's love throughout the gospel. We know Jesus says over and over, the Father sends me. We know um, the Father empowers him by giving the anointing of the Spirit at the beginning of his ministry. Um, He sends Jesus into difficult situations And ultimately, he honors Jesus. Jesus now says, I'm going to love my followers in the same way. And there are lots of parallels we're going to see. He's going to send his followers on a difficult mission, but he's going to empower his followers to accomplish that mission. And ultimately, he's going to honor his followers for accomplishing the mission. Now remain in my love, so continuing this idea of abiding with him, and here's how you abide with him. If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. So one of the things Jesus has emphasized is he scrupulously obeys everything the father gave him to do. And so his followers are now to model that relationship or use that relationship as a model for their relationship with Jesus. And then interestingly, he says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And to me, this is surprising because I typically think of when you talk about obeying commands, you're talking about kind of a grinding, joyless thing. And obedience is kind of the opposite of fun or joy. And Jesus says, no, there was joy for me in obeying the Father. And if you want your joy to be complete, you will obey my commands. And so, well, what are some of the ways the disciples talk about experiencing joy in obeying his commands? And if you Look through um, the New Testament. Some of the ways they talk about joy is seeing other believers mature in their faith. That's a really common thing we see in the epistles. Uh, Nothing makes me happier than to hear that you are progressing in your faith. That's not the only thing. One thing they talk about is fellowship with other believers. I long to see you again because when I see you, it makes me happy. They talk about being ministered by other believers. So when other believers do good things for you, that's a source of joy. They talk about when ministry is successful, that's a source of joy as well. 
They talk about answered prayer being a source of joy and the knowledge that we've been rescued from darkness and can look forward to sharing in Jesus' inheritance. All that is meant to be joy. It's joy that comes with obeying and the sense of security that you're abiding with Jesus. So in the midst of the suffering that we experience from the world, there should be joy that comes along with it. All right, comments, concerns about that? So if you're tracking at home, the whole discourse is about love, but he's also thrown in peace is something he leaves believers. Now we've added joy, too. So we've got love with peace and joy thrown in, too. And he reminds them, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. And now he says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So we've talked so far about some of the purposes that Jesus' death has. Here we get one that he hasn't really emphasized so far in John, which is that he's laying his life down for his friends. And to me, this implies that with regard to believers, Jesus' death has a special purpose. He's literally laying down his life to save your life. And he's got to go on in this passage to talk about how he chooses disciples. And so I think you can make an argument that this is really specific. He chose you, not just the twelve, to be one of his disciples if you believe in him. And he literally laid down his life for you in a personal sense. I think he can do that because he's God. He's part of the Trinity, so he knows you in a personal way. I think that's remarkable to think about. You can literally imagine Jesus by your side, recognizing you have a problem you can't solve, and he fixes it for you by laying down his life. So I think you can make an argument based on John's writings that support what you would call a definite or limited view of the atonement, I think you can also make arguments that John believes the atonement has some unlimited or indefinite aspects to it, too. This would be one of the verses that would be a strong support for a limited, definite sense of the atonement. Questions, comments, concerns about that? To make that a little more concrete, when you think about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, one way to think about it is that for a believer, he walked into a bank and he wrote a check with your name on it and deposited it in your account with God to cover your sins. Okay? That would be definite atonement, limited atonement. You could also say Jesus, at the same time, goes into the bank and creates a trust account with an infinite balance that can cover anybody's sin. But it's not applied to anyone. 
That would be an indefinite or unlimited view. Or you could say Jesus did both because he's God. And to me, which one of those you decide you like depends on what you think Jesus' purpose was in dying on the cross. I personally believe he can have more than one purpose. He can walk and chew gum at the same time. Not everyone agrees. Some people think you've got to choose one or the other. All right? Questions, comments, concerns about that? Well, it's a real atonement, um, but you have, to, you have to make it. You have to uh, live it out. As soon as you become a child of God and you've been universal, you've been renewed, it's a real thing. Anybody that's really had a change of heart like Nikki Cruz uh, talking about, that is a, a huge difference. Sure. So I think um, that's a good question. One is, you know, how do you know that you're one of the genuine believers? And this passage says you should have fruit. Um, If you look at 1 John, again, I think it's helpful. So let's start in one. Chapter one, verse five. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. So John argues no sin in God ever. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So I think he's talking about fruit there. And fruit essentially means the same thing as walking in the light. So you get this really intimidating statement that if you are really a genuine believer, there should be evidence of you walking in the light or, in Jesus' illustration, bearing fruit. But... Then he goes on to say, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So I think John argues that he knows you're not going to do this perfectly in this lifetime. And if you claim to be doing it perfectly, you're lying to yourself. So that's what makes it hard, I think, to know what your standing with God is. You ought to see evidence of some fruit, but you also are probably going to have to acknowledge, hey, I'm not doing this as well as I should be. And so we have to strive to do as best as we can. 
and hopefully get better at abiding while also acknowledging we're not going to get to perfection in this life. At the same time, I think there should be a subjective testimony that's talked about in other places um, that you have from the Holy Spirit. Hopefully you have an internal sense that no one else can see of a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. There may be times when you feel that more strongly than others, but hopefully you at least have some experiences where you can say, yes, I felt God was close to me, and that encourages me during the times when it feels like he's far away to sustain the idea that I have a genuine relationship with him. And then you should also hopefully have some objective evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Other people can see, hey, you display some gentleness, some joy, some love, some kindness, some peace. We can see that in you. All right. Comments, concerns about that. Let's go back then to John 15. So we've got this goal of abiding with Jesus and of obeying all his commands. We're not going to do it perfectly. And Jesus says something amazing. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So, Uh, I think Jesus, he's a king. He certainly has a right to look at us as servants. But he says he chooses not to do that. And the distinction he makes is um, in the first century, if you were a servant, the master could give you tasks and really didn't have to justify it to you. Move that pile of rocks. Is it going to be productive? Doesn't matter. The master told you to do it, so you do it. That was how the first century worked, right? Jesus says, I'm not going to treat you like that. I have explained everything that was given to me from the Father to you as much as I can because I view you as a friend. So God is engaged in this salvific program, not because he wants to treat us as servants, but because he wants to have a real, authentic, personal relationship with us, and he's even willing to call us friends. Then he says he chose them. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And I think this is most directly aimed at the 11 people he's talking about. There's a sense in which he chose them to be the primary leaders of the church to, and specifically to be his eyewitnesses. So one of the things they talk about um, when they decide that they're going to replace Judas is this needs to be someone who was around Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry because that's a key part of being one of these chosen people that we start calling apostles when we get to Acts. and the Gospels, we still refer to them as the disciples, Okay. But I think you can expand that idea uh, to everyone who's a believer. There's a sense in which, through election, you also were personally chosen by Jesus. And so this would be a strong election verse in John. 
John has other verses that make it sound like whether you believe in Jesus is up to you. He also has some of the strongest you were chosen verses out there. Okay. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. That's an idea we've seen before. It's once again tied very closely to the idea of carrying out what Jesus wants. And he repeats, this is my command, love each other. So the idea is that he'll give you what you want if you're doing what he wants and you're asking in his name, which means something he wants done pursuant to his authority. All right, questions, comments about that before we move on to how the world sees you. All right, so we've just gone over how Jesus is your friend. He wants to give you joy. He wants to give you spiritual life. Now we're going to see how the world views Jesus and you. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And if clauses in the New Testament can have different implications... This is one where it basically means if the world hates you, and it will, keep in mind it hated me first. Okay? Now that might have seemed weird at this point to the disciples because remember what's fresh in their mind is Palm Sunday and everyone cheering. But we're now in Thursday night, so in less than 24 hours, I think they're going to realize, ooh, he wasn't exaggerating. Once the world really figures out what he's about, it's going to hate him. And it's going to demonstrate that that very day in Jewish reckoning. Okay? If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And so Jesus makes the point that because you're my friends, you no longer belong to the world. And in John, the world is the collective entity of humanity, and it is always in opposition and rebellion to God, and its ultimate leader is Satan. And remember, one of his purposes in going to the cross is to drive Satan out and basically to reestablish godly humanity's authority over the world in replace of Satan, okay? And so when he says, you became a believer, he basically pulled you out of the world, out of the realm of darkness, into the realm of light, out of captive humanity, into adoptive child of God, right? And the problem for you is that means the world is going to view you the same way it views Christ, And it's going to kind of reject you the way a body rejects a foreign object. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and the implication is, and they did, as you're about to see, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And here I think the implication is some people did obey his teaching. The disciples are examples of it. So you can expect that if you're going about doing what Christ wants you to do, people are going to see Christ in you. 
Some people will respond to that the same way you did, and like you, they'll be pulled out of the world and into the family of God. But a lot of people are going to see you and think, I don't like that. And you're going to suffer consequences for it. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. So the implication of that is that if they really understood who God the Father was and how God the Father feels about Jesus, and if they understood how God the Father and Jesus feel about people who believe in him, they wouldn't treat you bad. So the reason they treat you bad is they are suppressing the knowledge, as Paul would say, of who God is. And that's why they feel free to persecute you. Then he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. And so the question arises, well, what sin is he talking about? Um, I don't think any conservatives view it this way, but you could spin that as saying, well, if Jesus hadn't showed up, no one would go to hell. And it's because Jesus showed up that anyone is guilty of any sin. But I think if you've read the Old Testament at all, you're not going to buy that view because it's really clear, even in the Old Testament, before Jesus has shown up, that God judges sin. We see that all over the place. So then the question arises, well, if that's not what it means, what's he talking about? What is it that they're guilty of because he showed up that they would not have been guilty of if he had not shown up. And I think the answer that a lot of commentators put out there is he's talking about the particular sin of seeing or hearing about who Jesus is and rejecting that. Okay, That's something you can't do until Jesus has actually shown up. And so that's the particular sin that these folks are guilty of. And there are other verses that I think explore that. So let's look at a couple of them real quick. So for example, Matthew 11. It says at 20, then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So there are other passages that talk about this same principle of how being exposed to Jesus and the revelation he brings creates a higher opportunity, but also a higher level of accountability. And so if you reject that, 
um, then you're going to be judged for it. So then you could argue, well, are we putting people in more danger by trying to evangelize them? And you can argue, yes, you are creating a higher level of accountability, but you're also bringing a higher opportunity, the opportunity to have a personal relationship with Jesus and experience all the blessings he brings. And Jesus makes it very clear that he wants us to do that. And so it's our job to carry that out Um, regardless of any implication you could come up with based on this. All right. Questions, comments, concerns about that? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of different things. There are a lot of different ways you could respond to that. I, I think your job is not to force them into believing or arm wrestling them. So one thing you could say is, I'm just a witness. Here's what I believe. Here's what I believe has happened to me. Um, I think Jesus saved me. My understanding of what Jesus says is that he's the only way to solve the problem of death. And so you can either accept that or reject that. It's your choice. But I think what Jesus says is that the consequences would be bad. If you do that, there'd be huge blessings. If you do accept it, it's working for me. I would invite you to consider doing it too. And that's all you can say. It's ultimately between them and the Holy Spirit what they do with that. But your job is to be a witness. And you think about witnesses in the courtroom, they aren't allowed to argue with people. They just testify based on their personal knowledge of what they know. And they don't get to argue with the parties. They don't get to argue with the jury. They just lay their testimony out, and the jury decides what to do with it. I think that's all we can do. And to some extent, I think it relieves the pressure of evangelizing if you realize I'm not in charge of the results and I'm not responsible for it. And I really don't have to argue with anyone. I just speak the truth I've experienced and I've learned from the Bible. Mm. I definitely agree. That's one of the more intimidating things Paul is able to say is, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. I think Paul talks about how he's not perfect and he hasn't arrived yet in Philippians, but he can genuinely say at the end of his life, I fought the good fight, I ran the race. And so, yeah, you you should hopefully at the end of your life 
be able to say, I ran the race. I wasn't perfect every day. There were times when I stumbled, but I got back up and I kept running. All right. Well, let's keep going a little bit longer. So he says, he who hates me hates my father as well. I think that's an important point in the context that Jesus is ministering in, which is in Israel. There have been plenty of people that would have said and argued, oh, I like the God of the Old Testament. It's just this Jesus guy I don't like. And Jesus says, you can't do that. If you hate me, you hate the Lord of the Old Testament too. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. That's a quote from a psalm. There are two psalms that actually have that phrase in them. Could be from either one. Then he says, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So one of the things the spirit does is he testifies to the world of the truth of what Jesus claims are and what's now recorded for us in the Bible. And he says, and you must also testify for you have been with me from the beginning. So again, specifically the disciples are the initial primary witnesses, but now we have the Bible, we're to carry on their work. We do that in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. So one thing that's comforting is we have the Holy Spirit out there working on people in the world, but we are to be part of that. So our job as believers is to love each other but it's also to be willing to testify to people who aren't yet believers in the hopes that they'll join the family of God. All right. Questions, comments, concerns about that? All right. Well, let's pause there. We've used up all the time.